Thank you, BRH. Let's pray together. Father, we have heard these students invoke your presence in this place today. You have promised to be with us when we worship you. Now in spirit and in truth, we seek you with all that we are. We ask, God, that you would teach us something new today, something, Lord, that will transform us so that we might become transforming agents in this world. We are grateful, Lord, for your goodness. We are astounded and astonished at all that you have done for us. Overwhelmed by your mercy, Lord, we come to you. Where else could we go, Lord? You have the words of life. Speak life into our lives today. Draw us near to you, Lord, we pray that we may worship you with all that we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to worship with you this morning. I'm glad to be back home. We were out last week. You may have noticed, or you may have been out last week as well. And uh, I've been uh, living sort of a Johnny Cash song since I left. I've been everywhere, man. Uh, if you know that song, I, I, just, I, I went to Waco, Dallas, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, back. And then to... Uh, Beeville, San Antonio, Austin, Waco, and back. And then I went to um, Beaumont, Lake Charles, Lafayette, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and back. And uh, really, most of it related to mission. First of all, my, my basketball team's been kind of on a mission. And then, um, more importantly, uh, we had a mission trip down to Beeville and uh, got a chance to worship with our kids there and, and watch them love children in a children's home. And that is a great great gift just to behold, to see them catch your heart for ministry and to continue in a new generation that work of serving the Lord and, uh, and caring for other people. So it's been a, a great time. And I noticed that you can almost make vacation into work if you're not careful, that it's not always very restful. And I look at Jesus' life and I, I take uh, hope from him because Jesus was always on the move, wasn't he? He was very busy, energetic, engaged with people and so he went to, to Galilee and then to Jerusalem and then back and he was constantly going somewhere. But on one occasion, we read in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus left the friendly confines of Israel altogether. He went to a Gentile area. This is not just Greek-speaking Jews like you have in the Decapolis around the Sea of Galilee. But no, Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon to the ancient area of Phoenicia that would have been filled in Old Testament days with Canaanites, and Jesus kept there a remarkable divine appointment with a Canaanite woman that changed her life and perhaps changed the disciples' understanding of the breadth of God's love and perhaps today could change our lives as well when we hear this good news. Would you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28, catching the crumbs. We've been studying hope. This is the year of hope. We've been hoping all year long in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament next Sunday, Palm Sunday, the following Sunday, the main event, Easter Sunday. Last year, our, our little girl was uh, with us for the first time on Easter, and she said, can we just stay home today? And I said, oh, no, honey, this is, this is Easter she said, you all make religious holidays out of everything. Why can't we just stay home one day? I said, no, no, if we ever miss a day on Sunday, it won't be on Easter because that's the big day, and you don't want to miss that day. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. Matthew 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, 
The Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. You may be seated. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. When you're exhausted, where do you go? Uh, Would you go to a place called Tyre? Jesus goes when he's tired to a place called Tyre and Sidon. And there he seeks out rest with the Heavenly Father. But even there, especially there in that remote area where he was far removed from the quarrels with the Pharisees. Understand, they had been pursuing him relentlessly They had been trying to legalize his disciples. They took issue. Every time he healed somebody on a Saturday, they said, could we just have one day without work, Jesus? Do you have to heal on Saturday? Couldn't you heal people? Couldn't you save lives on a Friday or a Sunday? Why do you have to do it on Saturday? Wouldn't it make you tired? Just dealing with that for three years or so. Every day, a new issue, a new quarrel, a new question This time, your disciples don't wash their hands the way the ceremonial law says that they should. Your disciples are unclean. Jesus, you're unclean. So Jesus is so tired of the Pharisees, he goes to an area that they would surely have called unclean, to Tyre and to Sidon, to an area where the Canaanites live, far outside the bounds of of Israel. If you could imagine it, a, a journey some 50 miles north of Galilee on the coast there in an island city called Tyre, a a city that was built on an island. Jesus goes to there and 25 miles further north to Sidon. It would have taken weeks to make this journey comfortably. And Jesus goes there, but even there, especially there, need found Jesus. That is, Jesus never got far away from the people who were in need because they found Him. And this woman comes to Him because her daughter is demon-possessed and she is seeking help. And by the way, she has exhausted the resources of Tyre and Sidon. They don't have anybody there who can do for her what she needs. But Jesus has come. Providence has smiled upon her. God has come to her and she comes running to Jesus crying out to him Lord 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 she says and Jesus disciples say she's really loud and obnoxious but Jesus grows her faith and he teaches his disciples simultaneously he highlights the reality that his ministry is not going to be as narrow forever as it is at this moment at this moment Jesus is just dealing with the Jews Paul would later write to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, salvation first to the Jew and then also to the Gentile, but to everyone who believes. And whatever we know about this lady, we know this. She believed. She had great faith. 
Jesus commends her faith as exemplary, as extraordinary. He's dealt with all kinds of Jewish people. He's dealt with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the Sanhedrin. But in all of Israel, he has not found this kind of faith, this kind of simple trust. And after Jesus extends her faith, then he extends to her what she needs and heals her daughter at that very hour. But first, there is a series of tests, a test of silence, a test of truth, a test of humility. And she passes every test. Would we? Would we have faith even in the face of what is apparent humiliation? Would we keep on holding on to hope when all hope seems to be gone? I love the way this lady hoped. And I want to show you something about hope this morning. Hopeful people are inevitably those who pray without ceasing. Who keep on asking when there seems to be no way they will not give up. And hopeful people persist. They persevere all the way through the finish. Notice the way that hopeful people pray. She teaches us something about prayer. It's odd, isn't it, that Jesus has likely gone by himself to pray. He does this frequently. Mark tells us more about it. Luke tells us that when Jesus is tired, when he is surrounded by people who need ministry, often he retreated and spent some time alone with his father. Surely that's where he found the strength to minister to so many needy people. It was because he had learned the secret of Sabbath, because he had found the spirit of the Sabbath, which was not the legalism of the Pharisees, which actually made the Sabbath into more work, but rather Jesus knew how to rest. Have you learned that lesson? Have we learned that lesson of rest? I've noticed that those who have found rest in God are uniquely enabled to offer rest to other people. Those who have recognized that we are refugees and have run to God for refuge and have found ourselves under the shadow of His mighty wings, we are those who can extend arms to those who are hurting and provide refuge for them as well. Jesus could say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls Jesus could say that precisely because he had found rest for his own soul in the presence of the Father. He has gone to Tyre and Sidon to get away from the Pharisees, I'm sure, but also to pray and to teach his disciples. And while he's praying, here comes this woman praying to him. How else can you describe what she does? First of all, every time she talks to Jesus, she calls him Lord. Now, she doesn't have the benefit of synagogue training. She doesn't have the holy heritage of the people of Israel. She doesn't have the law. She doesn't have the covenants. She is absolutely on the outside, barely able to look across the the cavern to see. But Jesus sees her when she comes to Him and she cries out, Lord, every time. Notice it, 22, verse 25, verse 27. Lord, Lord. Lord, what is she doing? Well, she's acknowledging His control. Even in the story of the dog and the crumbs, she talks about the masters. Jesus doesn't use that word, but she does. She knows who her master is. A story is told of a revival out in the country years ago where the preacher was preaching fire and brimstone, as was so often the case in those days. And while he preached fire and brimstone, no kidding, through the back door came a golden Labrador and just walked to the front of the church 
looked around, turned around, and went back out. And the people were sort of bewildered. It sort of interrupted the flow of the services. You could imagine if that happened here. And the pastor, thinking quickly on his feet, said um, one thing about that dog. He was looking for his master. He knew who his master was, and he was looking for him. Are you here today looking for your master? This woman came to Jesus because she needed to find her Lord, the only one. She calls him Lord, and, and then she, she calls him Jesus by his name, which means God saves. And then she says, Son of David, which is a very Jewish kind of description. It's odd on the lips of a Syrophoenician, but even the Syrophoenicians knew about King David. They knew about his authority, how his hegemony had extended the borders of Israel all the way to Tyre and Sidon where Hiram had sent down the cedars of Lebanon to build the temple and David had accumulated all of that David had extended he had lived in the presence of the Philistines for a season he knew what it was like to run for his life to be on the outside looking in and she wondered if David's son his great 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 grandson would have the same kind of compassion that David had first she acknowledges his control then she appeals to his compassion She says to Jesus, um, have mercy on me. I've been praying that little Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. I find in a wonderful way that it centers me when I am about to get distracted and lose my focus. I pray it just, I just breathe it throughout the day. I'm trying to learn what Paul meant when he said pray without ceasing. To just live a life of constant prayer where you're always asking God for mercy and as a part of that I've been reading a little book and in that book it talks about the times where people ask Jesus for mercy when I think mercy I think leniency is that what you think give me leniency I don't want justice I want mercy but when you read it in context when people ask Jesus for mercy you know what they were saying help help me I need help they were asking for help and the the reality for us in our sort of uh, um sort of insulated, affluent world is that we think there are lots of people in the world who need mercy, but we're pretty sure it's not us. We don't call on God for mercy to remind Him that He's merciful. He always is, and He knows that well. But unless we regularly call upon God for mercy, we might forget that we are are people who are in need of mercy, that we are sinners who have been forgiven and we sometimes continue to sin and we need God's mercy in our lives. She appeals to His compassion because she wants to believe that Jesus is the one who is going to care for her daughter and it's, it's humbling for her to, to cry out to Him in this way, but where else can she go? And what wouldn't you do if you knew your child's safety was in danger? What wouldn't you do to try somehow to help that child That's why she comes. That's why she humbles herself in this way. But notice that Jesus answers her not a word. Is that not odd? What is Jesus doing here? Scholars offer lots of options. Some say, well, he's just telling her the truth. The truth is Jesus' ministry at this time is focused on the Jews. Others say, well, he's trying to test her faith. Others say he's trying to strengthen her faith. I think I like that better. But others would say, well, he's really teaching the disciples. He's highlighting the fact that eventually his ministry is going to leave the local boundaries of of Judea 
to go out even beyond Galilee to go, as he will say in the Great Commission, to the ends of the earth. What Jesus does, though, at first is just to say nothing at all. Will she pass the test of silence? Well, she keeps on crying out. We know that because the the disciples who don't really pass the test of silence as well say, get rid of her. I mean, here, here, Jesus says nothing. The disciples say, get rid of her. The woman says, help! And she falls at Jesus' feet. And whenever this word is used in the book of Matthew, it's an act of worship. She is worshiping Jesus as her Lord. The Pharisees wouldn't call Him Lord. Sometimes the disciples don't get it, but this Syrophoenician woman has not missed the fact that Jesus is worthy of her worship. And she says, would you help me? She, she passes the test of silence when the disciples maybe. Not so much. It could be that they're saying heal her and send her away. It's not really specific. Verse 24 maybe gives us a hint that maybe that's what he's saying. But I wonder, how do we deal with the test of silence? What happens when the heavens seem like stone? When we call out to God and say, I need your help and I know you can help. This is not beyond you. And we wait and we wait. Like Martha and Mary after they send the message, the one whom you love is sick. Lord, just wanted you to know, the one who's sick, You've helped lots of people you don't even know, but this is Lazarus. This is the one you love. Come and help him. And Jesus waited there for some days. He did not come. He didn't even send a message. What do we do when the heavens are silent and we keep crying out? Is God compassionate? Does He care? There is a a foundational belief here on the part of this woman that God is ultimately a God of compassion even when he is silent. I read a blog this week about Haiti and I was reading about a little boy who lost his leg. There's so many kids. We've heard so much about the homelessness and the death, but a number of kids lost limbs because of uh, the earthquake. And one little boy lost his leg. He's waiting for a prosthetic device, a foot. And um, somebody was writing about it and how he had been waiting patiently and his family couldn't get him to the place. And and it's interesting to read the way Americans think, you know. There was a sort of series of responses. A lot of people said, well, I wish there was a way we could help this boy get where he needs to go. And I know a number of you have helped with Haiti. But some people are getting compassion fatigue, I suppose. Others were saying, well, you know, there's lots of people. But one man was adamant. I mean, he was just ugly about it. He just said, you know, there's lots of needs in the United States when you take care of America first. And then somebody else responded at the end and said, I didn't know that was an either-or choice. I didn't know we either had to help America or the rest of the world. I tell you, when Jesus helps the Syrophoenician, He is speaking volumes to us about the breadth of the love of God. Because to the average Jew, it would have been unthinkable even to speak to this woman. And yet Jesus engages her and says, well, I'm really here for the Israelites, not for the Gentiles. He's testing her, I think. Maybe testing the disciples here because I know that's what they thought and Jesus may be sort of stretching them. She doesn't change Jesus' mind, but Jesus extends her faith and strengthens her faith and and she says, help me. And then Jesus gives this analogy. It's an odd analogy, isn't it? If you really want to help somebody, using analogies that place them in the position of the dog is not maybe what we would think of. In fact, somebody said this is the hardest saying Jesus ever spoke. It's the most hard to understand. We just don't think in those terms. And why would Jesus even use an analogy like that? But Jesus knows exactly what He is doing. 
It's interesting to hear because Jesus doesn't use the word for the wild pack of dogs. Instead, he uses the diminutive here. He says, you don't take the bread from the table and give it to the puppy. Now, some of us do, actually. I cook an omelet for me and my dog every, every morning. But, but he, just following Jesus' analogy, you don't take the food for the children and give it. And he uses the word for doggy or puppy. But this lady is very quick. She says, even the puppies get the little crumbs. That's what she says. Even the puppies get the little crumbs. This analogy still holds true. I, I was in San Antonio this week with our family. We were eating at Casa Rio there on the river walk, and, and the pigeons were walking back and forth between the tables, picking up the little fragments of chips, you know, there on the ground and little fragments. And I saw somebody in the square there by the Alamo. Casey's fascinated with the Alamo, and I saw somebody there throwing breadcrumbs to the pigeons there. This analogy still holds true, that the dog waits beneath the table hoping to get just, just a fragment, and it's not an inordinate desire on the part of the dog to do that. But in this case, I don't know if you've ever seen that bumper sticker that says, um, you know, my dog is smarter than your honor student, you know, uh, somebody, you know, well, this, this, if the analogy is this lady is, is the puppy, this puppy is really, really smart. There's a wit there. That, it, that expresses a faith. And uh, sometimes we're surprised, aren't we? We took our little beagle with us on vacation because she has bitten all of our good friend's children. And so really, <laughs> there's nobody left to leave her with. And so we take her with us on the trip. And, you know, she stays in the kennel and we have to find a hotel, you know, that, that allows dogs and they have to wear and we have to, you know, keep her, you know, very trim so that she's allowed to go in the hotels and everything. And so when we got back from the mission trip and, uh, you know, uh, Chase preached that night, and we got to hear Chase preach and watched our kids love on these children. And then um, we got back to the hotel, and Melanie said, take the dog for a walk. And, you know, so I'm taking the dog for a walk. When I get back upstairs, the second floor of this hotel, it's just this long, just imagine a long sort of, you know, um, hallway with all these rooms off of it. And I thought, I'll try something here. She's never proven to be very smart, but maybe, you know, there's hope yet. And so I, I said, Shiloh, go to mommy. And so she starts going down this hallway, sniffing under every door. And finally, she stops at room 208 which just, by the way, happened to be the very room that was our room. I am elated. This dog is so smart. I can't wait to tell Melanie. Our dog knows us. She knows her family. I begin to explain this to Melanie, you know, in effervescent terms. And Casey says, she doesn't know us. She knows that we have hamburgers and french fries. She smelled them under the door. That's what it was. I read this week that the average human has uh, six million cell receptors to smell in our noses. It's just, you know, trivia. You learn real stuff here. Six million receptors. The average beagle, 300 million. 50 times our sense of smell. And by the way, our beagle is no average beagle. And this (laughs) woman is no average Syrophoenician. Maybe the average Syrophoenician has no idea who Jesus is, but she knows exactly who he is. And this is hope. She will not let go She says, just the crumbs. If I could just catch the crumbs. We don't need all of God's power. We just need one touch of the master's hand. Emily Dickinson, the poet, wrote, God gave a loaf to every bird, but just a crumb to me. I dare not eat it, though I starve my poignant luxury. I wonder how the rich may feel, an Indian, an earl. I deem that I, with but a crumb, am sovereign over all. Just a crumb from God is all that I need. Have you caught the crumbs of God's grace and His mercy? Have you received blessing from His hand? Has He answered your hope? Well then, 
What about those people who have not found hope? Who is the Syrophoenician in your life? Who in your, since 9-11, who is the Syrophoenician? Who is the person for you who is beyond the boundaries of God's love? Is there a group of people in our city who live perhaps in a portion of our city that you would say, those people are beyond God's love? I wonder if there's somebody that you think God no longer loves. Jesus saying to this woman, great is your faith is a reminder that God loves even the people we ignore. Even the people we don't see. I read Martin Hingle's amazing story this week about being in, in Germany um, during World War II and being sent to the Eastern Front where he w- used an anti-aircraft uh, gun there. He didn't know all that was going on with the Jews. But over in Poland, um, there was a man named Talman who is now a, a scholar in Israel. And they had come together in Frankfurt, Germany for a conference. And Hingle was telling about his story. And Talman told about going to Poland. And there, there was a group of Polish miners who came into the prison camp at night bringing bread from their own tables. They were not particularly educated people, but locally they were known as the Bibel Lazern the Bible readers, and the Bible readers loved the Jews and brought them food to eat in the prison camp. And I wonder if we are those like the disciples who are just annoyed with all the need, with our compassion fatigue, or are our hearts broken by the things that break the heart of God? Do we love the people He loves? Has our, have our hearts been expanded to the place that we care for all the people for whom Christ cares. There is hope for our world. I found myself this week reading a book called Half the Sky that talks about the atrocities against women in our world, about the human trafficking, and Houston is a hub for human trafficking in our world. A lot of slaves, 21st century slaves, come right through our city. And in this world... There was the talk of a way to minister to people who are hurt, to turn this oppression into opportunity to minister. There's a group in Africa called Heal Africa that are trying to help these women who have been subjected to torment and torture. And you and I, with all that God has given us, dare not say, send them away. Rather let us say, Bring them to Jesus. Because there is hope for the hopeful people who pray and who persevere. Is that you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for the richness and the wideness in your mercy. Thank you for grace that is greater than all of our sin. We come to you today, Lord, acknowledging your control appealing to your compassion, invoking your great grace in this place. Lord, give us enough grace not only to forgive us, but to make us forgiving. Make us grateful, gracious, grace-filled people by your glory, for your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.